Most of us parents would do anything to keep our kids from serious harm, but sometimes there isn't much we can do to prevent it. Often, this brings on feelings of frustration, helplessness, and even shame and guilt. We grieve that our choices cost our kids, and that can feel suffocating at times. But the simple reality is that we aren't fortune tellers, and we can't control other people's behavior, and we can't always have a say in the outcome. Trauma comes in its multitude of shapes and forms, even to perfect parents. But while we can't always prevent it, we can learn how to recognize it, and we can learn new ways to reduce the impact of it for our children. We don't have to be perfect parents. We only have to be informed parents. Hey, I'm Annabeth. I'm a certified trauma recovery coach and host for the Safe Haven Parenting Podcast. This episode is the fourth episode in my five-part Understanding Trauma series, where we break down what trauma is, the different kinds of trauma, the effects trauma has on ourselves and our kids, and what to do to support recovery. Today, I'm diving into how trauma affects kids, but be sure to catch the last three episodes if you haven't yet. When I was in high school, I auditioned for a local theater, and I was cast as the lead role in Pollyanna, where I was to play the formidable Aunt Polly, a strict, no-nonsense woman who adopts a slightly exuberant and quite unruly Pollyanna. The story unfolds like most, and it's fairly predictable. Eventually, you see the sweet orphan child bring about this beautiful change in their strict guardian. They learn how to behave and follow rules, and the guardian becomes a little less harsh and domineering. It ends with the finalizing of the adoption, and in this particular version, everyone in the town adopting another child too. It's a feel-good, happy ending story with a message of resiliency and hope. I loved playing Aunt Polly and the hard work that goes into producing plays. It's just fun. (laughs) It was an amazing cast, and I made great friends that year. But it's theater. That's not how real life unfolds with children who have experienced trauma. But despite this, society still tends to believe that theatrical version, that this is actually how real life works. And it's based on these three culturally accepted norms. The first is that if a child was too young to remember what happened, what happened won't affect them. The second is if enough time passes, time will magically heal it. And three, if you can keep your chin up and stay positive, that's what will get you through it. Just stay happy. Too bad trauma majorly affects our ability to produce the very hormone we need to be happy. But I digress. More on that later. So we have all of these feel-good stories like Pollyanna, um, Annie, even Anne of Green Gables, that all gave us this message that with enough time and love, we can heal anything. 
And let's be real, Pixar Pixar films in the 90s and 2000s had plenty of these thematic elements. But reality isn't like that. And expecting it to look like a fairy tale causes so much harm and even perpetuates more trauma. Trauma affects kids nearly the same way it does for adults. I talk about that more in depth on episode 3 if you missed it. But to summarize it, trauma causes one part of your brain to shrink, another to enlarge, and a third part deteriorates. But for children, where this is different is that they have the added negative side effect of it completely changing how they can develop. It not only slows their development, but can even stop it altogether. I'm going to really get into the science on that for two seconds, and then I'm going to give some actual examples. So a baby is born with a fully formed amygdala, which is the part of the brain that feels emotions. In typical development, that baby's brain would then grow as they watch you and interact with you over the course of the day. When that baby cries, it's then picked up with, by an attentive caregiver. Their brain does this thing where it fires and wires that experience. And slowly over time, other parts of the brain start to build off of those experiences. The baby learns that the world is a safe place. And from that place of safety, development can happen. This is the basis for healthy attachment and the ability for that baby to grow into someone that can form healthy relationships. At around the age of two, the logic and reasoning part of their brain starts to form. This is the part of the brain that helps them self-soothe, processes their experiences, balances cause and effect, and identifies their emotions and what to do with them instead of just feeling them. And alongside this, their hippocampus is also developing, which is responsible for coordination. So this is when you start watching them learn how to walk without falling flat on their face. You see them get a little bit less clumsy. The older they get, they continue to develop all of these skills together emotional regulation, impulse control, cause and effect, processing memory, and physical movement. This continues on until they are a young adult. Even in high school, this brain is still developing. Have you ever seen a high schooler act impulsively? Yeah, that's because that part of their brain is not even fully formed yet and won't be until almost the age of 26. Research shows us that the most crucial parts of development happen between birth to age five. This sets the stage for all of their future relationships and best long-term outcomes for things like school and work. But when trauma happens, those development sequences, they get interrupted, mixed up, or even stopped completely. Trauma causes that emotional part of the brain to swell up, the memory and coordination part of the brain to shrink, and the logic and reasoning part of the brain to disintegrate. 
when these things are happening, it changes the brain's ability to develop normally and can even reverse developmental milestones like being able to sleep on their own throughout the whole night. Trauma also causes inflammation and messes with a child's ability to produce and manage crucial hormones like serotonin. Like adults, when children experience stress, they go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. This is our body's normal coping method for dealing with stress, and it's the first sign that something isn't right. It's our body's signal that we need to protect ourselves, and it's valid and okay. The problem is not that we experience fight, flight, or freeze. The problem comes when we can't fix what is causing that reaction or identify why we are having that reaction. And then we get stuck there. And this is what trauma does. Because when we experience trauma over time, it makes that amygdala swell which again is the part of our brain responsible for emotions and for that fight-flight-freeze response. And when that amygdala is disproportionately bigger, the other parts of our brain, they don't have room anymore. And that's what causes them to either shrink or deteriorate. And when we lose those parts of our brain or we have less access to them, that means that we have a harder time processing stress. And it's harder to recognize safety and figure out what to do with that fight, flight, freeze response. So when we go through something stressful, instead of being able to tell ourselves, hey, it's okay, I'm safe here, I just feel stressed because I didn't get enough sleep last night and I'm feeling tired. We wind up going, I feel stressed, there's an emergency, something's wrong. And now we have this warning bell in our body telling us to fight, flight, or freeze. If you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, they did a really great job showing this process visually. If you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. It's a fantastic movie. But really, this is all just a ripple effect. It's kind of like if you give a mouse a cookie, but instead it's if your child has experienced trauma. If your child has experienced trauma, then their amygdala gets bigger. When their amygdala is bigger, it harms their limbic system, and then they struggle to process stressful moments. When they struggle to process stressful moments, then they will get stuck in fight, flight, freeze. And when they get stuck in fight, flight, freeze, then their body processes it as trauma. This, this is why time does not heal all wounds. This is also why it is extremely difficult for trauma survivors, children and adults alike, to just be happy and forget about it. Trauma causes developmental delays in children and it also causes neurodiversity. Those cannot be reversed by ignoring that they exist. Just like with adults, when a child is living in fight, flight, or freeze, we usually see it come across in behavior. 
So a typical fight response for a child may look like really big emotions all the time, angry outbursts, refusing to cooperate, storming off, slamming doors, stomping, yelling at you, lashing out physically, hitting, biting, kicking, breaking stuff. They are often labeled as disrespectful, rude, insensitive, bossy, loudmouth, or rebellious. A typical flight response for a child may look like that child hiding behind you all the time, or just hiding in general. It may look like them avoiding what you ask them to do or breaking down into tears quite easily. Anxiety and panic attacks are really common. They are often labeled as overly emotional, flighty, inconsistent, impolite, and shy. A freeze response often looks like a total shutdown. They may not be able to hear what you are saying or be able to speak or even feel. They may look like they are staring into space or come off as totally absent-minded. They often appear quiet and withdrawn they don't interact at all with their peers, and they are often labeled as stupid or a dunce or a mix of rude, shy, rebellious, and shy. It's really important to recognize that these are not the child's choice, but a child's coping mechanisms, and we all have them. This isn't about a child being immature or a child being willfully rebellious. It's about how the child is responding to stress. Also, all kids do this, regardless of their trauma background. The difference is that trauma makes this the default mode for our kids. Whereas you might see this behavior in typical kids around bedtime or when they're feeling hungry or overwhelmed from too much homework, With trauma, you may see a 10-year-old responding to stress like a typical 3-year-old because at some point their brain had to keep them safe from what they were experiencing. And that safety was the priority over developing emotional regulation skills. So then when they're 10, they don't have the ability to handle stress and they respond like a typical 3-year-old would. This is what I mean when I say that trauma causes developmental delays. As a parent, this can leave us feeling totally unprepared to manage this, especially when we have our own healing to do. We may feel like our kids need 24-7 supervision to keep other kids or pets or things safe. We may feel like you finally get one thing dealt with, only to realize that while you were dealing with problem A, they were creating a whole new set of problems in the other room. It can feel constant, exhausting, overwhelming. You may even not like being a parent, because no one signs up for this. You may also feel sad or guilty that you can't fix it. And the behavior can lead to the parent or caregiver feeling isolated, alone, and burnt out. These behaviors often lead us to seek professional help 
And common diagnoses for children who have experienced trauma are attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, sensory processing disorder, oppositional defiance disorder, depression, anxiety, mood disorders, and sleep disorders. Those are all also all common misdiagnoses because post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD and complex post-traumatic stress disorder or CPTSD mimic all of those. More and more research is actually coming out that suggests that ADHD, ADD, ODD, and SPD are most likely a form of PTSD if trauma is present. This is what I mean when I say that trauma causes neurodiversity. Many children struggle to get accurate diagnoses, and the field of medicine is currently about 20 to 30 years behind on trauma education, which often leaves the parent needing to be the one informed to advocate for their child. We may not have easy access to informed care or resources. And this is another reason why our society's beliefs surrounding trauma have to change. When we assume that a child who can't remember it or talk about it has gotten over it, then when their trauma shows up, we feel justified in blaming the parent. We feel we have a right to ask them to leave our schools, communities, and even family functions. This belief has caused a lot of unintended harm for those of us with children who are trauma survivors. Because when we see the behavior but don't link it to the root cause, we start believing that it's a moral failing of the parent. And then we place pressure on that parent to better themselves for the sake of their child. Parents often hear things like, you need a firmer hand. You're just letting your child be out of control. That child is old enough to know better. Even I would never let my child get away with that. And then as the parent, we feel either like we are failing or like we're alone. We feel unsupported by those around us and we get told that the behavior was our fault and it's clearly because we're just doing it wrong. But the thing is, we can't punish a child out of trauma. No amount of hitting that child, putting that child in timeouts, lecturing that child, taking that child's things away, sticker charts, bribes, ice cream treats, and prize baskets, or any other form of rewards or punishments is going to fix a trauma response. It's just going to increase our children's stress load. So how do we change this? How do we lessen the effects of trauma, be it divorce or loss or abuse or whatever other form of trauma our child experienced? Despite all the harm that trauma can cause, one thing stands out among all the research, which is that all it takes is one caring, informed adult to completely halt the harm that trauma has caused and to reverse the damage it left behind. When we take the time to learn about trauma, how it affects us and our kids, and how to heal from it, 
we become our children's best line of defense. All it takes is one person, but you don't have to do it alone. Our next episode, we're going to get into the actual strategies that help heal trauma and what a realistic road to recovery looks like. It's our last episode in this Understanding Trauma series, and then we'll get into what surviving the holiday season might look like as a trauma survivor, you know, typical things that we face and what to do about them. So if you haven't hit that subscribe button already, be sure to do that so that you're the very first to get notified when the next episode drops. Till then, all the best.